0: Thank you guys so much. That was uh, really something. That was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Today's scripture reading, I invite you to stand with me as we read from the book of Joshua. We're going to start in chapter 6 in verse 1. And we're going to read the first five verses of Joshua chapter 6. Again, Joshua chapter 6 verse 1 begins like this. Now the gates of Jericho... Were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its kings and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And then the walls of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And once again, let's give our choir a hand for doing an amazing job. They have been working hard on that, and it showed. Thank you so much. Uh, We do have Kingdom Kids today, so if we have any kiddos who are four-year-olds through second graders, they can join our Kingdom Kid workers in the back in the foyer, where they'll have a chance to learn and worship at their level, and then they can be picked up after the service right next door in our education building. And as they are heading out, let me make uh, one quick announcement to you before we dive into the story of Joshua leading God's people into Jericho. Uh, as you know, what we're doing on Sundays, or as many of you may know, we're following along in the preaching schedule with the uh, readings, uh, Bible reading plan. Okay, And so if you haven't gotten on board with the Bible reading plan yet, I encourage you to do so. You've heard me say this before, but if you haven't started, just start. It's dated, so start today. And then as you have time, you can catch up uh, on what you've missed the first few months of the year. Um, but one thing that this plan does, it's meant to be an introductory reading plan, which means um, kind of a, it's a, a, a low bar to get into it. It's only three chapters a day, one reading from the Old Testament, one reading from Psalms, and then when we get through Psalms, we'll go to Proverbs, and then we'll repeat reading those two books. And then one chapter out of the New Testament. And I know some have asked uh, with a bit of confusion that we're repeating reading some books, we're skipping other books. And that's because if you're only re- reading three chapters a day, it's very hard to read all of it. And we're trying to make it fit within a, one year. And so, but one thing I did notice is in the New Testament reading, it does cycle through three times. And it does skip a lot of books. And I thought, because we're kind of using a plan that we've adapted from uh, another ministry that developed this reading plan. And I thought, well, we really could go back and read several of these books we're skipping, at least in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we're only reading through it once, and we can't really go back and add in what we've missed easily. But in the New Testament, we could. And so what you're going to find in the four year is if you want to add uh, those readings to your schedule... Uh, we have this little handout for you stapled. Now, if you like using the book and it's bound in a very certain way, I can't remember what you call that, but it's got a little plastic spine to it. If you want it hole-punched and added to yours, if you'll bring this up to the office, let us know. We'll hole-punch it and you can stick it and we'll stick it in there because you've got to have a little special tool that makes it kind of easy. Um, but we, we don't mind doing that. Just let us know, hey, I'd really like to add this to my binder and we'll do that for you. If you want to stick with the original plan, which has you reading through the same books of the New Testament three times in the year, go for it. Because to be honest, as I've thought and prayed about this, I really intend to to stick with the Old Testament for probably the whole year. Because for one, we don't hear from the Old Testament a lot. And there's a lot of really good stuff there that we can learn about. And we can see the shadow of Christ in the Old Testament, just as we see the fulfillment of Christ coming in the New Testament. And then... I'm just thinking ahead a little bit here with you. I don't know for sure. We just need to continue to pray and ask the Lord to lead us. But I anticipate that even in the new year, in 2023 that I think it would be really neat to just do a New Testament-only reading plan and then do the same thing we're doing this year as I preach through the Old Testament and next year preach through the New Testament. And at the end of two years, we will have covered the whole Bible pretty thoroughly, which is a, a wonderful thing. And so I don't know that that's, I'm just kind of talking out loud a little bit here with you. But if you want to add in some of the books that you missed in the New Testament, just pick this up. Add it in. You'll see in just a few weeks, it's going to rotate over. And instead of reading Luke again, you will start Matthew. And that'll actually be the third, uh, third day of May is when that's going to kick in. So this is the sheet. Pick it up. If you want us to hole punch it for you, um, let me know. Be glad to do that. All right. That's enough of that. Now, what you did read this week was a portion of Joshua. We've been in uh, the story of Joshua. We started last week and we see that Joshua is... Um, someone who has followed and learned from Moses. He was one of the original spies that entered into the promised land. He was one of two that came back out of the 12 tribes represented among the spies, saying the promised land is exactly what God explained to us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. We ought to go in and take it. God's promised it to us. Let's go. The other 10 said, no way. It's, the walls are thick and tall. The people are thick and tall too. This is too dangerous. We're not doing this. We're going to get routed. There's no chance. In fact, they were so upset, they said, let's pick a new leader and let's go back to Egypt. This is too difficult, right? And uh, God punishes them for that, for that act of disobedience. He says, none of you folks are making an end to my promised land. Your kids can make it, but you're not. And because uh, Joshua and the other Part of the minority report of the, t- of the 12, the, other, the second person, Caleb, because they were faithful to God's promise and their vote to take the land, those two actually are t- some of those who do make it into the promised land so we're following along in the story of Joshua. And now Joshua has taken over the leadership of God's people as they're about to enter into the promised land because Moses, their faithful leader who led them out of Egypt in slavery, led them through the wilderness as they wandered around for 40 years, he's dead. He has died. He's not the one that's going to lead them into the promised land. Joshua is. And we talked about last week how God encouraged Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be fearful, do not be dismayed, for I, the Lord, your God, am with you. And that was a wonderful promise. And now we're going to see today how God fulfilled that promise, how Joshua and God's people experienced it, and the troubles that they also experienced along the way. So let's pause for just a moment, and let's pray, and let's take a look at the story of the fall of Jericho. Father God, you have already blessed us so much this morning. From the great conversations I know that our small groups had around your word and in fellowship with one another through our time of worship and song and hearing the beautiful words of a variety of songs through our Easter choir. And God, now we come to your word prepared to continue to worship you as we hear from you. So Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word. You would challenge the way we think, encourage our hearts, and prepare us to take what you have to show us today, and to live it out. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Joshua, starting in verse three and going through verse, or starting in chapter three, going through chapter seven. That's what we're going to try to accomplish today: is covering those four chapters, which is a bit ambitious, okay? But that's what we're going to attempt to do. And when you look at this, there's two ways to look at it that I think are two sides of the same coin. One is that this is a story of victory. Most definitely. If you know the story of Jericho, you know how it ends. It ends in victory. But it's also a story of being tested. Just as God's people were tested in the wilderness, even before that, as they were being tested in Egypt, as they were tested in slavery, as they were tested in uh, their disobedience and in there wandering for 40 years in the desert of Sinai, now they're going to be tested as they claim the promise of God that I'm going to take you Israelites, I'm going to make you into a nation I'm going to give you a land and out of you I will bless the entire world through one of your seeds of Abraham which ends up being Jesus himself. God is preparing the world for the good news of Jesus through these people but in order to accomplish or to uh, experience the promises of God, they have to enter into the land. So they are going to be tested as they were in Egypt, as they were in Sinai. So they will be tested as they enter into the promised land. That had me thinking about tests. How many of you like to take tests? Any test takers? So how many, Let me phrase that differently. Would you rather take a test than write a paper? How many are on that board? Okay. And the rest of you would rather write a paper than take a test? Is that what I'm getting? You're like, no, I would not raise my hand for either. I'm not in either camp. Okay, all right. Uh, I would prefer to take a test. It's a lot quicker. It's a lot easier. And it it got me thinking about uh, one of the first tests I had to take when I started my master's degree at the South Texas School of Christian Studies over in Corpus. This was a number of years ago. And I started uh, my first semester, I had Old Testament two. I'd miss Old Testament 1, so I'm picking up in the middle in Old Testament 2. They break it up into parts, right? And so I study for this exam, Old Testament 2, and I study really hard. And I feel reasonably confident that I'm going to go in and I'm going to do really well. I'm at least going to, you know, make a B, maybe better. You know, I was feeling pretty good about it. And then he, the professor's name was uh, Dr. Ron Lyles. And Dr. Lyles, he handed out the test. And as soon as I read the first couple questions, I realize I am not ready for this. How many of you ever come across a test and you read those first two questions and you think, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. It felt like I had studied for a different test. I don't even know how to explain it. It was really bewildering to me. How did I get this so wrong? And uh, the grade proved it, that I did, in fact, get it really wrong. You know, like not... Uh, well, I can pull up this grade pretty easily wrong. More like a not a D, not a like a low F, I would describe my grade. I think it was probably in the 40s or 50s, it was really bad. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I'm gonna have to work so hard to pull this grade up because there wasn't a whole lot of grades. Like, I have to ace everything, wasn't a whole lot of grades in that class. I've got to ace everything for the rest of the year. Praise God, I did, and I pulled out a B. It was the only B I got, and I told him that. I said, you know, the only B I got in my master's degree was in your class. And he had no remorse on his face whatsoever. It's like it didn't bother him at all. It's like, come on, man. Anyways, so tests. I don't like tests as much. I, I don't, I'd don't. i rather take tests than, you know, write a paper, but tests are challenging. We have to prepare for the test. We have to do well for the test, but then what comes after the test matters too, Right? What came after that test that I felt so badly? I had to put more energy and effort and, and ask more questions and think a little bit deeper about how to prepare. We have to prepare. We have to execute. But then we have to be ready for what comes after the test. And I believe God calls us into some tests in life that are challenging to us. And I won't run through the list, but you could think of any number of tests, that some of which you may be going through right now. And the tests that God gives us, I believe, are designed for two things. And I want to repeat this as we go throughout the message this morning. Because I think this hits on the center of what's happening in the life of Israel. God allows us to experience tests in our life for two reasons. One, to show us how weak we are without Him. To show us how weak we are without Him. I think God allows us to be tested to show us how weak we are without Him. But the second part of the test, the reason why I think God allows us to experience tests is because He also wants to show us how strong we can be with Him. So let me repeat that. I, I think God allows us to experience tests in life to show us how weak we are without Him, but how strong we can be with Him. And I think that proves true in the life. Of Israel. So keep that in mind as we walk through what they had to do to prepare, how they executed in the midst of the battle, and what came after that. It's a lot of chapters. I'm going to try to cover them quickly in preparation. One of the first things, first of three things I see happening in the life of Israel as they prepare to enter into battle to take the promised land. God does three things. The first thing he does is he prepares for them a leader, Joshua. He lets them know, this guy is my guy, follow him. And whenever there's a test, someone's got to lead the way. Oftentimes in our personal life, the test is before us and the person to lead the way is You. God has called you to lead through that test that you are facing with his help, right? God knew his people were about to go through a serious test. Entering into the promised land, fighting for the land that he has promised them, right? And they're going to need a leader. So, what does God do? God prepares for them a leader. He shows them that Joshua is the one. Joshua chapter 3 verse 7 the Lord says to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of Israel so that, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. So God does some things in the life of the leader Joshua to show them, just as I was with Moses, I am with your new leader, Joshua. I'm preparing you to pass the test by showing you that with I am with him. Therefore, you will have victory. In other words, God may say, I'm showing you, I'm preparing you to pass your test because you're the one that's going to lead the way. And you will be successful because I am with you, right? And those are the words that God gave Joshua in Joshua 1.9. So what does that look like? What does it look like that God was with Joshua, preparing him? Exalting him in the eyes of Israel that they may know that God is with him, just as God was with Moses. Well, God would lead them through the Jordan River. Did you know that? Just as God led, just as Moses led God's people through the Red Sea, now Joshua will lead God's people through the Jordan River into the promised land. This is such a momentous moment that the story goes that the waters. On either side of the Jordan, which run down and feed the Dead Sea, the water stood up tall, like almost like a, a waterfall in the opposite direction. And word got out that they crossed into the land of Canaan, the promised land on dry ground. It's an incredible moment, and it, it sent shockwaves through the land of Canaan. And people began to tell the story Have you heard what happened? when these Israelites crossed over the sea, and it wasn't just that they crossed over the River Jordan, excuse me, it's that they crossed over during flood season, where the Jordan River could be a mile wide in some parts. But as soon as they put their feet in the water, the river parted. Now they had to go forward, and the promise of God that God was with them, they had to follow their leader, Joshua, to do it. But as soon as they acted out in obedience... God responded, and the waters parted, and they walked through on dry land. They crossed the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua. God is preparing them to pass the test by establishing for them who will lead the way. The second thing God does is He has them circumcised. Now this always gets a little strange. But circumcision itself was something that was practiced around the ancient world. This was not something unique to God's people. What was unique was a couple things. One, it was unique that circumcision was practiced early on in infancy. On the eighth day, they would circumcise their children, their males, the men in their families. They would circumcise them on the eighth day as a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Those two things stand out as unique. Amongst the ancient world, where this was practiced as a religious rite... This was unique, that it was under a covenant with God, so it was a spiritual covenant, and also that it was done early on in life in infancy. Now, what is this telling us? And, and there's a couple different theories about circumcision, and I don't want to go uh, too far down this road. You could do the research and learn some of this yourself. But here's a basic idea. And I I take this from um, an encyclopedia of the Bible that says... ...circumcision had to do with the fulfillment of God's promises concerning Abraham's descendant. Because it was applied to the reproductive organ, the sign involved the uh, the propagation of the race. And later on they'll explain that in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6... ...this command assumes the form of a promise that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart... ...and the heart of your offspring... So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so even in the Bible, we see circumcision not just used in the sense of this covenant, but also used in the sense of circumcising your heart, cutting away the flesh. Cutting away that, that which would displease the Lord in order to focus on the Lord. And because it was done in this specific rite, it's also saying not just you, but your children's children, your children's children's children, all the way down. God is calling his people to practice this as a way to renew and to activate the covenant. and Say this is, this, is what, this is who we are. God has called us into this relationship. So it seems a bit strange to us perhaps. But if you can put your mind in that ancient setting. God is taking something they knew. And he is using it for his own purposes. To show them about this covenant in which they are engaged in with the Lord. Now they had not practiced that while they were wandering around the desert for 40 years. All all the males who came out of Egypt as adults had been circumcised. But now in the desert, they stopped doing that. So a big part of their preparation was to perform this sign as a way to say, remember the covenant. Remember, God is calling us, cutting away from us sin so that we might be holy so that through our children and our children's children and our children's children's children, on down the line, God will demonstrate who he is. Remember that the promise of Abraham is that there would come one from the seed of Abraham who would bless the entire world, the person of Jesus himself. So it was a ritualistic act, but they had not promised it, and they had not uh, practiced it while they were in the desert. And now they're going to renew that covenant with the Lord. And they would circumcise all those who grew up in the desert, born in the desert, but were never circumcised. So they're focusing back on the covenant of God. They're estab- God is establishing a leader. They're focusing on the covenant of God. And another part of that focus on the covenant of God is focusing on the promise of God as celebrated in the Passover. So these are the three things. The three things that God is doing in the life of Israel to prepare them for the test. Establishing a leader, renewing the covenant, and then the third thing is practicing or celebrating Passover. We read that in Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. We read about the Passover. Verse 11, we'll pick up there. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the product of the land unleavened bread, roasted grain, and the manna stopped the day after. Remember, the manna was provided for them to eat while they were in the promise, or while they were wandering in the desert. But now they're on the edge of seeing the fulfillment of God's promise of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And God says, now I want you to pause, and I want you to celebrate the Passover. What was the Passover? Do you recall the story from the book of Exodus? The Passover is when the death angel passed over every Israelite who had put blood from the lamb over their doorpost, signifying that they were part of this covenant relationship with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And because they had done that, all their firstborn males survived, but all those who did not, their firstborn male was taken by the angel of death. But they have been passed over by the grace of God. They they have been they have been spared by the grace of God. So something about this covenant is also a covenant of grace. That they were not in a relationship with God because they were good. We we've seen them prove otherwise, right? They're in a relationship with God because God simply chose them. And God's going to use them to bless the whole world. He he just gave them grace. That's what grace means. It's unmerited favor. It's a gift given. Of course, this is foreshadowing what Jesus does for us. Do you have to earn the gift of salvation? You do not. And you could not. Just as Israel could not earn the favor of God, we cannot earn the favor of God given to us in Jesus, which is a new covenant. So God uses these three things to prepare them. A leader, the renewal of the covenant through circumcision, and the celebration of the Passover. All of these things are steps along the way to prepare them for the test. Now the test comes. And the test, the question is this. Will they be obedient to God when God asks them to do that which makes little or no sense to them? And what are we talking about here? We see something interesting happening at the end of Joshua chapter 5. At the end of Joshua chapter 5, they come across a man, Joshua does, near Jericho, who's known as the commander of the army of the Lord. Some would say that this commander of the army of the Lord, if you look into the New Testament, is Jesus. It's a showing of Jesus in the Old Testament. That's that's what some would say. I think with some good reason, because what does Jesus say when when he is uh, when he is when he is going through his his uh, time of trial and crucifixion? He says, "Look, I could call down angels from the Lord. I'm I'm in charge of those angels. They could come and save me if I wanted them to, but I'm fulfilling the will of the Lord." What's he demonstrating? That he is the commander of the Lord's army of angels, and this person is. Addressed by that same title, commander of the army of the Lord. And here's the exchange between him and Joshua. Joshua looks up, he sees the man standing in front of him in Joshua chapter 5 verse 13. With a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us? Or are you for your enemies? He wants to know, are, are we going to do this right now? Are we going to battle this out? What's about to happen? Who are you with? you with us are you with them? And the commander of the army of the Lord has an interesting response. Neither. He says neither. Now what's he saying here? What he's saying is, it's not about is God on your side. The question is, are you on God's side? That's the question. What Joshua wanted to know is, are you on our side? And what the angel or, or the commander of the... Lord's army of angels says, no, 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 I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I'm on God's side. You should join me. It's a precursor to going into battle. It's almost like an affirmation to Joshua that or, or a reminder that this might be a test. Do you go into battle hoping God is on your side? Or do you go into battle with the assurance that you are on his side? That's not a bad question for us to consider. How would you know? You know you're on God's side when God asks you to do things that don't make sense to you, but you still do them. This would be a challenge that every Christian has experienced. When money's tight, but God has called you to give and you give. When God has called you in the midst of your, you know, uh, what's the right word? When you feel maybe insecure or, or you, you, know, you don't feel like uh, I have anything to offer, there's nothing to give and God says, no, I want you to serve. Or you say, I, I don't know the right words, I don't know the Bible front to back, but God says, I want you to give your testimony to that person anyways. There's going to be time and time again where God calls us to do something that doesn't make sense to us. But in the act of obedience, what we are saying is, God, I'm not hoping you'll join me over here on my side. I am coming to you joining you on your side because I'm going to be obedient to you, even though what you're calling me to do in my own human thinking doesn't quite compute. And listen, Christian, you are going to have this experience multiple times in life. This is the test. Will you pass it? If you fail, the good news is you're going to learn how weak you are without God. And if you pass it, the good news is you're going to learn how strong you can be with God. What's going to happen here for these folks? We've already read what they're asked to do. You've got these huge, thick walls that are surrounding Jericho, one of the oldest and longest surviving cities in the world. I'm sure it's one of those first cities the spies saw and said, Well, there's no way we can take the land. Look how big these walls are. Look how thick they are. They could be feet thick, not inches, feet, stone walls. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go around, make a lap, and then go back home, take a nap, come back the next day, do that again. On the seventh day, I want you to do it seven times, and he's sending seven priests with him. There's something about the number seven here that's standing out. Seven days of creation is the seven days of completion or perfection. What is God communicating here? I'm going to bring complete, perfect victory through your obedience. So they do it, and what happens? The walls fall, they go in, and they have a God-ordained victory. I want to pause here for a second and remind you of what you may have heard before, which is out of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where we read from the Lord, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. The test will come and God will, I, God will command you to do something that in your own human thinking doesn't compute. And the test is, will you obey him when it doesn't make sense to you, but you trust him? You don't implore God to join you on your side to make it easy for you. But you've heard from God. You know what he's calling you to do. And you are going to join him on his side. That's the test. It's a test every Christian will face multiple times in life. Well, you join God on his side and trust him and do what he's called you to do, even when it doesn't make sense to you. Because you know his ways are higher than mine. His thoughts are higher than mine. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere. He is all-powerful and he is all-loving. That leaves very little room. Oh, Oh, by the way, he is eternal. He's been around leaves very little room for me to doubt when I remind myself of those things, when he is calling me to do that which doesn't quite make sense to me. And this is the test. Will I obey? Now, here's what happens. In short, they do obey. They have victory. They go in and they clear out the land. Now, I want to say something here as well as a a bit of an addendum because if you're reading through this, you may struggle with this idea that they come in and they wipe everybody out. It says, women, it says men, women, young and old. And if you struggle with that, I want to just say I get that. That's a hard thing to read and comprehend that God would call them to do that. I want to say a couple things about that. And I want to invite you to pick up a handout that I printed out of the NIV study Bible that I think might be helpful to you. On your way out, you'll see this on the table. kind of looks like this. It's got a little picture of a desert up top. And the title of it is... The conquest, war, and genocide. One, God is working on an eternal plan. Two, these folks were operating outside of the will of God and they were given hundreds of years to repent and they did not. Talking about the people of Jericho and the people of Canaan. One of the very wicked things that they would do is they would sacrifice their children in order to appease the gods that they made up so that they could be more productive, or successful in life. That's something they would do. God knew if any of that creeps into my people's relationship with me, it's going to be destructive. We'd already seen that happen, and you're going to see it happen in the future as well. So God commanded them to wipe them out. That's all I want to say about it right now, just If you want to know more, you want to think about that a little bit deeper, you're welcome to talk to me about it. Go read that handout. See if that is helpful to you. But those are just a few thoughts on this situation. But they do go in. They do have a route. But one of the things God tells them, this is the aftermath. After you have success. After you have victory. After you either learn how weak you are without God because perhaps you failed. Or even more so, how strong you are with God. And you pass the test. What comes after that? And this is an interesting part of their story. This is the aftermath of passing the test. It's the story of a guy named Achan. Now, we're told in advance, in chapter 6 of Joshua, starting in the middle of verse 16, we are told that the instructions to God's people were to keep... Away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. What are they talking about? All the silver, all the gold, all the articles of bronze, the iron, are all sacred and must go to the Lord. God's instructions to them is when you have victory, the plunders of war are not for you. They're for me. One guy disobeyed that. His name was Achan. Achan took some stuff that he shouldn't have taken. And here's what happens when there is, as you may have heard this phrase before, sin in the camp. Here's what happens when one person, after the victory, fails. They go to war against another little town. They send just a few, few thousand people, not a lot. And they get routed by a, city, by a, by a little town called Ai. Ai. Joshua's distraught. The, everybody's confused. We just had this great victory over this incredible city, Jericho. And now how can we lose to Ai? And God says, well, here's how. You've got sin in the camp. Someone has taken what was not theirs from the battle of Jericho. And so they go through this deciphering process and the Lord leads them to Achan. And Achan is punished by God. Here's, here's the point that I take from that. He that see, you can come out of a test having passed the test and become relaxed. You can come out of a season of not having much but sacrificially giving what you have to the Lord into a season of plenty where you shrink back from being generous with God. Right? You can come through illness or disease and pray fervently and then you come out of that and all that focused prayer just fades away, right? You can go through the test and experience victory. And you're just you're showing up to church. You're reading your Bible every day. You're doing everything you can to win the victory. And then the victory comes and you are no longer on that spiritual mountain. But you got to come down that valley. How are you going to live in the valley? When the high of victory wears off, will you be faithful to God In the valley. See, it's easy to be faithful to God when things are very difficult and your spiritual life is going up because you're praying more and you're reading more and you're being more faithful to God. And then you hit that valley when things slow down. It's after that experience, after you've passed the test, how will you live then? And Israel shows us how not to do it. But they do handle the sin in the camp. They do repent. And then they do have the victory soon after that over that same city. Well, that tells me is that there's grace. Because we've got to be honest, we're not passing all the tests God gives us, are we? I'm not. The test every day I fail, I am certain of it. You could probably say the same about you. We're not going to pass every test. What do we learn when we fail? I hope we learn that in our weakness, I can't do this without God. But after the victory, I hope we can also say, but in God's strength, look what can be done. In the words of Paul, in my weakness, I am strong. When I recognize my need for God, then I find God. And let me tell you, that is the posture you must have to even come to God. Is to say, I'm a weak sinner. I can't save myself. I need help. I can't fix my problems. I can't fix my heart. I can't fix my thinking. On my own, I am weak. Tests of life will show us that. But in that moment, if we come to God and we confess that weakness and we say, God, I am a great savior. You know what God says to us? Yep. But I provided for you a great savior. You say, I'm a great sinner, God. What hope is there for me? And God says, you're right, you are a great sinner. But look, I have for you a great Savior. And right in the midst of that, this proves true. When we fail the test, we see how weak we are without God. And when God helps us to pass that test of faith, God shows us how strong we can be with Him. Let's pray. God, sometimes we read your word, it's it's not always easy to quite understand it all or bring it all in to a way that we can apply it, but that is what your Holy Spirit does. And, and I know we've read things uh, this week or even this morning that challenge us and make us ask questions, and that's not a bad thing. we got to pray that what we would all walk away with is knowing that, the test proves that we are weak, but it also proves that in you we are strong. Because I know there are more than a few here this morning, myself included, that are being put through a test. And we need to prepare, and we need to do well, and we need to be concerned about what comes after passing the test. But through it all, God, what we need to know most is that you're with us in it, just as you promised Joshua. We need to know that in our lives. We need to know that when we're stuck in sin. We need to know that when we're experiencing victory. That you are with us. You are the center of it all. Help us to place our eyes on you. And your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.